Hey everybody, welcome to episode 36 of Think Relevance, the podcast with our guest Neil Ford. Uh, Super happy about this episode. Neil is an awesome guy, really interesting to talk to. Um, Before we get to that though, as always, I want to mention a few things. For example, if you're looking to get into pedestal uh, web development, uh, the pedestal team here at Relevance just released this super in-depth tutorial for the client side of things, which is uh, really cool. It's gonna take you about eight hours to get through the whole thing. It's really big, really thorough. So uh, really good way to dive in. Um, so you can check that out and you can find a link to that at pedestal.io, which is the home of Pedestal. Um, also, if you are going to be near Des Moines, Iowa from August 2nd through August 4th in 2013, uh, our co-founder, Stu Halloway, will be speaking at No Fluff, Just Stuff He's going to be talking about a bunch of stuff, including introductory closure, simulant, which is a really neat uh, testing framework and approach to testing, generative testing, some more testing stuff, and codec, which we've talked about on the podcast here before. Um, Stu is on the road a whole bunch the next few weeks and while, so uh, you can check him out at various other No Fluff, Just Stuff venues. So you should go to their website at nofluffjuststuff.com for more details. Um, I think that's all we got for you right now. There's always a lot going on, but I think that'll suffice. Don't want to hold you up from this episode anyway, because as I said, it was pretty great in my humble opinion. Nothing to do with me. Neil is super interesting. So uh, I will leave you with that, and we'll get on to the episode. Thanks for listening. So today is Friday, July 5th in 2013. This is Think Relevance, the podcast, and today we are extremely pleased to welcome on the show uh, Neil Ford. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks. It's great to have you here. Happy to be here. Although the last one of these I listened to, you were driving in a car, and uh, you're talking to me, and you're not even going to take me out for like coffee or anything afterwards. So. Uh, I would. I owe you. I'll. I'll buy you the beverage of your choice the very next time I see you. How's that sound? That sounds good. Cool. Awesome. So, so people might be wondering a little bit why we're having you on the show. Um. So, uh, I'll have you introduce yourself first if you could tell us who you are and where you work and those types of things. That'd be great. Sure. Oh wait, uh, wait, wait. Sorry. Sorry. To interrupt you, but I have been, I'm an idiot, and I almost forgot to ask you the music, <laughs> the song we're coming in with. So uh, what what are what are our listeners uh, hearing in the background right now? Yes, this is a song uh, called Luminol by uh, Stephen Wilson off of his latest album called The Raven That Refused to Sing. He's the, uh, the torch carrier for modern progressive rock, and uh, this is his latest offering. Awesome. Well, I, I think people that have listened to the show uh, and maybe catch the... Uh, the little snippets of stuff that I play underneath the intro bit that comes before the show. No, I am a fan of uh, progressive music, so that's very cool. I'm looking forward to, haven't heard that one, so I'm looking forward to checking it out when I put the show together. So cool, cool, cool. Nope. 
Awesome. So, who am I? Yes. Uh, my name is Neil Ford. I work for ThoughtWorks, which is, for those of you who don't know, an international consultancy. We kind of specialize in agile software development, and we try to stay on the cutting edge of technology, uh, both process and hardcore technology stuff, which is uh, partially why I'm uh, such a fan of the closure space. And um, we do a lot of talking about continuous delivery. In fact, Jez Humble, one of the co-authors of the continuous delivery book, is a thought worker. And let's see what else about us. We're about 2,500 people worldwide. I've been there a little over eight years. I have kind of an unusual role and an unusual title at ThoughtWorks. Uh, my title on my business card is uh, Director, Software Architect, and Meme Wrangler. Mm. Uh, ThoughtWorks lets you pick your own title on your business cards. I've, I've seen the business card that has the title Seat Warmer on it. Uh, <laughs> the only rule is you only get one set of business cards, so you have to use them all up before you get to change your title. Mm -hmm. And mine's kind of evolved over time. And the Meme Wrangler title, uh, I used to have just Application Architect on my card, and I realized in a lot of organizations that now means Post Useful. <laughs> but you spend way more time using Visio than you do any sort of proper tool. And uh, so I was, uh, I came up with the idea of meme herder, which of course relates to the Richard Dawkins meme definition of a viral unit of thought. And I was on a mailing list, and, and uh, Prague Dave Thomas was actually on the same mailing list, and he suggested Wrangler. And that's, of course, much better because Wrangle has two nice definitions. One is the kind of herding definitions. The other is kind of uh, mediating arguments. And uh, both of those fit pretty nicely. So if you had to pick one title, that's probably the most accurate title. Uh, so for ThoughtWorks, I do billable project work of one kind or another. And I also speak at a lot of conferences and do some writing and video presentations and that sort of stuff. Yes, yes, you're very prolific. And I, I I really love the, the the stuff of yours that I've seen, and and that actually speaks a little bit to why we wanted to have you on. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons, really. I mean, one is uh, you're a friend of, of of relevance in general, and of, of several of us that work there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've run into you at Stu's any number of times, and and you and Stu and Justin have um, have done speaking together. And in fact, I think you guys recently even produced a uh, a video together as well, something outside of the usual just conference circuit stuff. Yeah, that was uh, that was the closure inside out video, and we're we're kind of informally calling it uh, the villain's guide to closure, mm -hmm. because you know the the typical hero's journey is you know start very gently and then gradually get into deeper stuff, and uh, we did the opposite. Every every subject we touch, we kind of took a deep dive on it. Um, but my main function in that video, I think, was. Uh, uh, getting Stuart scheduled to stand in front of a camera and then holding him captive long enough to have him talk about closure for f five or six hours. So, yeah, uh, having got that to happen, I consider my mission to be a complete and, su and a success. Uh, that's awesome. And I think you're, uh, I haven't seen that particular video, but I have seen you speak. And so I, I would be a little surprised if your role was limited to that. You, in, in particular, um, again, coming back to why we want to have you on, I mean, you, um, as again, I said, you're a friend of, of both the organization of uh, Relevance and also individuals there, um, myself included. Uh, but also, you have been a huge proponent, and you mentioned this, of some of the technologies that we really like, and Clojure is notably among those. Um, and I, I remember well your uh, talk from uh, 
think it might have been the second closure conch. I believe it was, yeah. And it was, I forget the exact, maybe you can say the exact title because it was a really good title. Well, I don't remember the exact title either, but it was something like uh, Neil's Master Plan for uh, Enterprise, uh, uh, Closure Enterprise Mindshare Domination or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, World Some Domination. Sort of, yeah. yeah, Evil Genius kind of title. Right, right, which is which is great because, um, and, and actually I think it was um, really forward thinking of you because, so... You know, here on the podcast, I don't know if you've listened to it at all, but um, people that have listened for a, a few episodes might have noticed that, um, you know, there are sort of trends that I think mirror what's going on in, in you know, the part of the software world that we occupy. And one of them, I think, is that um, uh, closure is – so growing up is the wrong word because I feel like it's always been a production quality tool, but I feel like sort of culturally – um, it is gaining acceptance. And so your talk at Closure Conj was essentially, look, this is a for real tool and you're going to be able to use it, but there are certain um, sort of social things that need to happen before that's true at more places than it is right now. Um, and so I thought you had a really, really good insight. And so, I mean, people can go find that talk online, but uh, I think the timing is, in the Closure world is such that uh, – might could you maybe recap that real quick for us? Like, what were the factors that you saw in effect that are kind of touching on that? Yeah, it's uh, most of it has to do with around you know what does decision making look like in large organizations and the perspective that CTOs have. And part of the perspective I brought to that talk is I do a talk as part of my normal conference circuit stuff around. Uh, the this idea of building your own technology radar, which kind of apes this document, this white paper that ThoughtWorks produces a couple of times a year, uh, the thoughtworks.com slash radar. And it's a bunch of opinionated ThoughtWorks technologists who get together and say, you know, this is a technology we think is kind of cool. Uh, it's not meant to be like a comprehensive view of the whole landscape. It's just kind of an opinionated document about what we think is cool. And I've been doing this talk for a while. And one of the things putting that talk together, it kind of made me think about what is the decision-making process for choosing a new technology, both from a developer's perspective and from like a CTO's objective uh, and perspective. And they're completely different because if you, when you put yourself in the, the shoes of somebody like a CTO, it's a, it's a much more about risk mitigation than it is technological advance in many cases. And they misinterpret the whole idea of, you know, what what kind of advantage does technology give you versus, you know, what is the cost of and risk of adopting something new? And they never get that equation right. And it, we've known that for a long time. And, and, you know, this is nothing new. Fred Brooks talked about this back in 1975, which still makes Mythical Man Month an entertaining read. Uh, I reread it about a year ago, and it's hilarious because it, uh, of course, it was written in 1975, and it's a duplex book. Half of the advice is around technology and half is around process and the technology advice are things like you should really consider using a higher level language than mainframe assembly language for <laughs> writing your code but the process advice you could have written last week and it's still applicable mm. and and that you know the idea that you know very small groups of very highly talented developers using you know powerful tools can produce much much more than platoons of average developers using dull tools that's that's a, a message that's been hard to get across still, mm. and that you know that that hampers a lot of the uh, adoption in enterprises. So I was, I gave a bunch of strategies for how people might make this happen within enterprises uh, 
kind of the Linux sneak in and become so useful that by the time they discover you, you can't be gotten rid of or, you know, lots of strategies like that. Yeah, that was a really good talk. Uh, and, and I wonder whether you think in the intervening almost two years now, whether everything still applies or whether there's anything that you think has shifted. Well, I think people are gradually becoming more polyglot. So I think the idea now versus five years ago of using some other language other than X, where X is some value of Java or C Sharp or PHP or some other corporately mandated language. I think that's becoming a little more palatable to a lot of organizations because I think actually the polyglot persistence movement is helping that along quite a bit. Because they're now seeing... The Sorry, ration- I, I actually don't know what that is. What's the polyglot oh, persistence movement? That's the whole... It's part of the NoSQL idea, but it's this idea that there is no one true data store to rule them all. Gotcha. You know, big enterprises have been trying to, uh, you know, beat Oracle into doing all sorts of bizarre, unnatural things for years and years <laughs> because that's the corporate standard. Had one client that was trying to do a social network graph by doing Oracle joins And I think they finally got the query down to about four and a half hours. And then they did it in Neo4j, which is a graph database, and it was a a sub-second query in in Neo. And that made them start thinking, you know, do we get a prize if we get this to work on Oracle? Or, you know, what's what's the real outcome here? And so I think a lot of organizations are now kind of the, the, the... uh, ice age of, you know, everything is on a relational database is starting to thaw. And I think along with that is this idea that, you know, if we're going to start opening the gate on decisions in that space, we should start looking at some of the other kind of fundamental de- architectural decisions we've been making as well, start being more selective about those things. Hmm. So you think they're actually related that the, that the, as you say, the, the change in the way people are starting to think about databases actually relates to things like tooling and languages? Well, I think it, it ultimately comes down to um, what is your ultimate role as a technologist in an organization? And for a lot of people, particularly along the kind of IT wave of, and I'll be really broad and sweeping here, the last you know 15 years or so, a lot of it has been about making better efficiency within your organization using technology, replacing manual systems and automating things. And, you know, a lot of enterprise software is taking existing systems and frequently now it's taking existing broken automated systems and making them less broken and more automated and, you know, and movement like that. But you look at uh, what about, let's consider that you're in a, uh, an organization or a space where that's completely done, that everything, your business process is as streamlined with technology as it can possibly be, then what does the role of technology become in those organizations? It becomes a competitive edge against other people. So you look at, for example, the companies that are doing the most radical thing in terms of uh, the continuous delivery space, which is continuous deployment. That every time we check in, it shows up on our website. A lot of those companies are in very, very cutthroat kind of competitive environments where they view the technological edge as a business advantage. So one of the things that we do, we do a lot of these kind of continuous delivery engagements for clients now, and we always talk about this really key business metric, and this is really becoming a real metric in a lot of organizations now, this, this cycle time metric. So there's this a more familiar probably metric lead time, which is uh, Agile is trying to attack in general. Lead time is the amount of time between when we have an idea, does it show up in working code? 
and that gets that attacks your prioritization and estimation of all these engineering processes. Continuous delivery itself is focused on a subset of that, which is cycle time, which is a measure of engineering efficiency. And cycle time is the amount of time when I start working on a problem, how quickly can I get it to show up in working production software? Mm. And so we're trying to squeeze cycle time down as much as possible. And, and you know, we, we keep having these case studies. So a recent one was a company that had a cycle time of six weeks because they had a standard release cycle of six weeks. And by automating all those pieces, we got their cycle time down to two and a half hours. Now, if they're in a market where their competitors are still in a six-week cycle time, I can now easily do a couple of hundred releases for every time you do a release. Mm -hmm. So every time you come out with something in the marketplace, I can try something. I can try something else. I can evolve my approach until I'm beating your brains in, and you can't react to that. Right. At some point, technology becomes a competitive advantage, and you look at smaller, more agile companies that don't have the kind of weight of legacy software that they're dragging around. They tend to pick technologies that are going to give them a faster way to market and use the technological advantage as a way to, to kind of uh, beat some of their competitors when so that you don't have to have a better business case. You, you can use a, a combination of your business and your technology to win a market. Yeah, that actually rings, that really resonates with me. Um, you know, I don't spend as much time on the, the business side, uh, uh, so that really, but still really resonates with me. I worked in mortgage as my first real job out of college, and, uh, you know, back back then, I don't really track it, so I don't know how much it's changed, but back then, you know, you had Freddie uh, Mac and Fannie Mae, and they were more or less guaranteed to get all the loans that had certain parameters. You know, I think it was between 100000 and $250,000 at the time. It's mm -hmm probably considerably higher than that now mm -hmm. um but uh so that we weren't them so you know we we had to occupy other spaces in the market and you know the 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 game was identify a new product that could exist given regulation and everything and then bring it to market because as soon as you brought it to market um you had a window where the margins were i don't know 25 percent until your competitors started doing it and then they fell to you know, 5% over the course of whatever their, I guess, cycle time was. Mm -hmm. And so if that was six months, you know, multiply the size of a loan by the margin by whatever, it was millions of dollars if you could get stuff out there. Now, at that particular company, <laughs> the result of that was slamming whatever you could into production as quickly as you could, independent teams. It was the, the uh, operational environment was kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. um, and, but 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 absolutely was exactly that. It was it was if we can if we can get to production faster, we can make a lot more money because the margins will fall quickly uh, based on how fast our competitors can do that. Well, and back in the day, that was kind of a wild cowboy thing to do because you know you're just kind of slamming code into production. We're trying to do that in a much more controlled engineering kind of way now. You know, a lot of the most enterprises are not ready for continuous deployment, but you know this idea of uh, always having production ready code, you know, it, the, the outcome of any check-in is something that's ready to go, I think is becoming very appealing to organizations. And you look at, and the, what is the, the effect? So the, the classic kind of example of this is if you look at engineering techs back in the, uh, the, the seventies and eighties, there was this giant integration phase on projects where you had to get all the code kind of working together because you'd go off by yourself uh, you know, for weeks and months at a time and then try to merge it all together at the end. And it was this horrible, painful thing. 
And that was one of the things that continuous integration tried to kind of attack is never let people code in isolation. The XP guys, when they started continuous integration, the idea was everybody commits at least once a day. And of course, we've kind of, uh, we've, we think of that now more as the mechanism rather than the practice of continuous integration. But the side effect of that was we don't talk about the integration phase of projects anymore. It's mm. just evaporated. The, the impact of, of automating some process, some engineering process away is that it evaporates and disappears and you reclaim that time to do other stuff. And if you look at the most painful thing in most organizations right now, it's the go to live, you know, going into production is really painful. If you can automate that pain away and make it so that it's just a natural part of your ecosystem, you free up a bunch of time to do other useful stuff. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I haven't tracked the continuous delivery, what would you call it, movement, idea, meme? <laughs> meme is a good, yeah, it's, it's absolutely a meme. It's, it's becoming a bit of a movement, I think. So what are the implications here? I mean, because I, mean, I think one thing that springs to my mind is, you know, y you probably have to get a lot better at testing, automated testing. Well, it's interesting because there are some really interesting intersections between uh, continuous delivery and some of the things that are happening in the functional programming, particularly the closure space. Uh, this is always a really fascinating thing to me when I went to university of the kind of inadvertent synergy between classes. I remember I was taking uh, an information theory class about automata theory and all that stuff. And I was also taking a history class at the same time that overlapped the historical period that the automata class was covering. And it was fascinating having those two perspectives. And I feel kind of like that because most of the things I talk about now are either continuous delivery or functional programming related. And so it's kind of inevitable that those kind of things are, are going to merge together in my head. And Exactly. Uh, to what you're talking about, one of the advantages I think that functional programming just in general has, and, and, and it's really not just functional programming, but the heavy emphasis on immutability uh, means that you have less tests you have to write. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about what a unit test is. The unit test is I'm checking that this state got transitioned from one to the other. Well, if you have very few state transitions, you've isolated the places that you have to do tests. So I think in functional code bases, you probably have less of a testing burden to get the same level of confidence in your code because you're not chasing around transitions quite so much. Yeah, yeah, it's always the hard parts or the parts that uh, um, either integrations, which you know, uh, presumably they're you're integrating with a stateful system. That's what mm -hmm. makes it hard because otherwise mocking it becomes trivial. Well, exactly. In fact, I think that. So one of the things that I've uh, I've been very fascinated about is the uh, a lot of the for example closure community does a lot of agile practices but something that doesn't seem as pervasive in that community or in the list community in general is the the amount of unit testing that happens in for example the Ruby on Rails world or most of the you know the mature enterprisey languages and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, when you're coding in a functional language, you tend toward more decomposed systems. Certainly, if you look at uh, things like the way the you know the seek libraries work in Clojure, for example, you you tend to try to get things down in the shapes of problems you already know mm -hmm. and can use the building blocks that are already there. And in the the Clojure and Lisp world, a lot more emphasis is placed on kind of REPL interactions. Well. And then the, the biggest downside to that that I see, I actually like doing that kind of REPL interaction, but you lose regression testing. Yes. 
Uh, and so that's kind of a downside. And, and I've always thought that that was a huge detriment, but I'm, I'm coming to feel that it's a slight less detriment if your system is so well composed that it, when you need to make changes in the future, if you can just drag the code you already have in the REPL and it pretty much works, then you have less of a need to have set up that entire stateful environment that a test needs to run in. But a lot of the effort in unit tests is getting all the pieces in the right place so that you can exercise it. And if your system is decomposed enough, then you have small enough pieces where reestablishing that kind of contextual environment is trivial and you don't need to as much. Right. And, and, I, and I wonder whether you would agree that, um, you know, in addition to that, the 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 place where regressions can come from, one of the places is I made a change over here and they didn't realize that it was going to affect that over there. And to the extent that your code is decoupled, those, uh, or, or rather maybe more cleanly coupled, right? Or loosely mm -hmm. coupled in an obvious way, those dependencies become obvious and it makes it easier to make the changes in both places, realize you need to make the changes in both places. Yeah, I think that's true because uh, you do have a much cleaner kind of relationship between things. I think one of the negative side effects of the the kind of structural things we tend to do in object-oriented languages is it really hides coupling from us. It's it's hiding, it's encapsulating a lot of you know very useful information hiding, but it also hides a lot of coupling points. Uh, one of the uh, I was at a client project not too long ago, and we were doing an architectural evaluation. This is a, a you know existing Java project, and I pulled it up in a visualization tool called X-Ray. Uh, it's the Eclipse plugin. It was done by this graduate student, but it it gives you. It's actually uh, borrowed from this really old school small talk tool called. Um, code crawler. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it gives you this view of your code that you haven't seen before, where it gives you bars for classes where the width of the bar is the number of methods and the length of the bars, the number of lines of code, and it shows the inheritance hierarchy as well. And they were really struck by looking at it through this tool, how coupled all the code was that was in that inheritance hierarchy. And they'd never really thought of that as being coupling before. They'd always just thought of it as inheritance. But they realized that when they described the symptoms, the problems they were having, which is, you know, changes here ripple uncontrollably through all these places and it's causing us problems, they realized this is at its heart a coupling problem, but it was being hidden behind the fact that they had this really elaborate kind of inheritance hierarchy where they were actually modeling something in an improper way. I, I think uh, in languages that don't have quite so much hiding going on, relationships between things become more explicit because there are less places you can hide them. Well, let's let's take closure as an example because I think this is really interesting. Um, and I think it's a language that you know a lot of our listeners are most familiar with. Um, wh but what is what is the the mechanism? I mean, how how it is how do we proceed from there's like where where can I put my finger on the language and say, that's the feature that does what you're talking about. Like it's well, it's very flat. So basically, you've gotten rid of one level of information hiding because in Clojure, you basically have namespaces and functions. And of course, you can hide functions by making them private, but there's not that extra level of class and the extra level of coupling that comes with things like inheritance. You know, inheritance is basically pre-wired coupling. 
It's a coupling that you already know the rules for and understand how it works. And in most of the cases where you use it, it is the appropriate kind of coupling because it's allowing you to consolidate code and get code reused through polymorphism and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the negative side effects of that is you tend to uh, hide lots of things in classes that if you didn't have that extra level of place to put stuff, you wouldn't. It, your hierarchies would become much flatter. Mm. So I think that even hierarchical things in languages like Clojure, where you model things in protocols and implement them in functions, tend to be much flatter hierarchies of knowledge than places that use classes because you have this extra level of tying things together with inheritance, uh, which you know brings its coupling and polymorphism with it. And you know there's just more places to hang things. So and you have less places to hang things and fewer places where you can hide them. I wonder whether uh, we should you know, maybe give closure a new motto, which is, uh, you know, it, it, it'll run, but you can't hide. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Less places to hide. Less places to hide. It's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, one of the, the side effects of, you know, organizations that are have never been agile and then become very agile is that middle managers and useless people have no place to hide anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's some, I think there's some correlation there that useless code has less place to hide. And, you know, if there are fewer places in the hierarchy where you can kind of uh, latch onto. So this is, this is really interesting. And I, and I actually want to turn the question around because I think, um, you know, it's important for, for anybody to look, I am a huge fan of closure. That is, I will program everything in Clojure. I mean, I'm writing this crazy keyboard. It's not a device driver, but it's not far from it in Clojure. So I will use it for things where it may not even be appropriate. But I still think it's important for us, any user of a tool, to go, okay, this is not for everything. And so mm -hmm. what I want to flip the question around and say, okay, so, so Clojure as compared to something like, say, Java or, mm -hmm. or any language that has you know, inheritance, you know, lacks that place to hide your code. So if I'm writing closure, what are the places that still exist that that have that negative property of of hiding coupling that I should watch out for in your opinion? You mean places in closure? In closure, yeah. Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, well, certainly anytime you're interacting with something from the Java world that has, you know, you're, you're kind of digging into some sort of deep inheritance hierarchy, there's a chance there, but you know, that's just a a nature of interacting with something. Um, I don't know. I think you could probably uh, build up a level of complexity commiserate with Java if you got really crazy with multi-methods mm. and did a lot of really wacky dispatch and, you know, had multi-methods that call into other multi-methods to do dispatch. I think you could probably build something equally as complex. I bet you could build something as complicated as EJBs if you really tried hard. <laughs> Although I think it would take uh, man years of effort to be able to create something like that. All right. Well, that's interesting. I'll have to keep my eye out. If I think of other things, I'll have to say, hey, Neil, what do you think? Is this uh, is this interesting? Well, I think, you know, over time, uh, Clojure has actually added some things to take the really useful cases for things like multi-methods. Uh, you know, protocols is kind of a simplification in some ways of that. So, you know, I think the uh, I think the, the language is evolving in ways that kind of make that more obvious. Um, you know, the, to use the, the place, you make it easy to use it at the places where the most common cases exist and then, you know, have the, the extra power there for places where you really need to get in and dig that extra level of abstraction down and, and untangle something. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, adding uh, features, although I guess technically it's a library and a language feature, have you looked at the, the new Core Async library at all? Just took enough, a glance at it, read over uh, Rich's overview of it, and it's really cool. 
Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing around with it. That's some really nice stuff. Yeah, same here. I, I got the opportunity um, on, like, it's two days ago from when we were recording this to uh, do a podcast with him about it, and I got a, a little bit more insight on it, So, I, I, but I still need to really to dig in and get that tool under my belt. Yeah, that looks really cool. They, you know, I think there's a lot of really fascinating stuff happening in the closure space. And I think that I think that's helping it a lot differentiate itself from other language communities because, you know, the, the closure community, both closure and closure script keep creating these wicked cool things that, you know, keep turning people's eyes, even people who have kind of looked at it and said, Oh, you know, I should list, you know, no way I'm gonna do that. But then the the output from the community keeps keeps pulling them back in and keeps keeps getting people intrigued. So uh, I think that's uh, I think that's a good sign. Yeah, it's I mean it's hard to to it gets it becomes much harder to say well I would do closure script but I don't really want to do a lisp when you can say oh, I understand that you know people have different aesthetic sensibilities but here's a library that gives you something that looks a lot like threads in the browser. Yep, exactly. That's hard to argue against. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, this goes back to one of the things I said in that talk, uh, uh, in my enterprise domination talk, is uh, one of the things is, uh, um, one of the pieces of advice I said is uh, pack heat. You know, if, if you claim your language is more powerful than all the other languages, then show that your language is more powerful than all the other languages. And doing things like, oh, well, ClojureScript can give you basically the same kind of semantics that you get in threads and hide all the complexity underneath. You know, that's a, that's a pretty powerful statement toward that idea that, yeah, this is a pretty, pretty powerful language. We can, we can adapt other abstractions pretty nicely and uh, make them fit into our abstractions that we like. Yeah, you had a. I think it was your talk. I'm, I hope. I hope it was because it's such an awesome image. I would love to attribute it to you. Uh, you, you said, uh, you know, closure is. Uh, well, I think you were speaking about Lisp in general, but certainly closure is a Lisp. Um, is like uh, bringing a gun to a knife fight. Exactly. Yep. That's but then, exactly it. But then you had that picture. Was it you that had the picture of the gun? With one barrel that pointed in the usual direction, another one that pointed in the opposite direction. No, I didn't. That wasn't my imagery. <laughs> right. That was an awesome one. I thought that was pretty great. It's like, yeah, yeah. There's certainly enough bullets there to shoot yourself with. But um, yeah, well, it, it's it's interesting that the projects that Closure has really shined on at ThoughtWorks, uh, the one that there a pre, we a press release is out, so I'm not I'm not letting any cats out of the bag that weren't already out. But uh, it's a system that uh, an eye systems in uh, California, they're molecular biologists, and they basically figured out a technique by which you can take someone's genome or aspects of their genome and aspects of the cancer they have and analyze it and come up with extraordinarily focused treatments mm. for specific kinds of cancers for specific individuals. And uh, Ola Benny is one of my colleagues. He worked on that project, and it was done in Clojure with Neo4j as the backing. And uh, Ola has, has been pretty vocal by saying that given the complexity of the problem they were trying to solve and the time frame they were doing it in, that it would not have been practical in any other language but closure. That even trying to do it in Java would have been taken so long that it would, the results would not have been practic uh, um, um, practical. That's interesting from a guy who has written a language. Yeah, he's written several, yeah. right? including several, you know, lispy kind of variants. Uh, he actually got very, very intrigued in the whole genetic space and, and you know, really did a deep dive in that space. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's a huge fan of Clojure now and did some, some really cool things with it. Do you think if we asked him nicely, he'd come on the show and talk about it? 
Oh, I'm sure he probably would as much as he can. There's still, I'm sure, some very serious NDA <laughs> right. kind of stuff around it. But uh, yeah, given what he can, and certainly he's got a good experience in you know using closure in a a, a very uh, innovative way, and you know where the rubber meets the road for uh, a long project and producing really exciting results. Yeah, I think that's actually you know what I was alluding to earlier. I mean, we had um, we've had. Um, uh, one of our customers, Roomkey, on the on the show, and we're and we're always interested in talking to people more and more now who are are using it in production because I think there is actually kind of a lot of it out there. And if you just sort of were brand new to Closure and you Googled around the web and turned to the people at the desks to the left and right of you and said, "What do you think? Is anybody using this?" You'd get a very different picture than you know the one that you, that you know people like you and I see, where we're where we're a bit more in the in the Closure trenches. Mm-hmm. So uh, exactly to that point. Uh, so I did that talk at the, the second closure conj, and uh, I gave all these strategies for getting it out into the enterprise. And about a year later, I got an unsolicited email from someone who had seen that talk online, and he sent me an email. And I asked him if I could use his email if I redacted some key details. You'll see why in a second. And he said that I could. And so I'm going to read you bits of this email that he sent me in in response to this talk. Uh, And just to set a little bit of context here, uh, he works for a company that has built this large Java, uh, basically, package system. And they write customizations for this system, and they do this on a flat rate contract basis. So, you know, they come to them, we need this customization, they flat rate it, and they ship it. And so here's what he sent me. He said, we recoded our flagship application, name redacted upon request, from Java to Clojure about a year ago and never looked back. Why? Reduced our lines of code down by at least half. Support and bugs have likewise been cut by about 65 to 70%. We have large enterprise clients. How did we get closure into these very old guard environments? Between you and me, we lie. (laughs) We don't talk about closure. We talk about Java extensions or the closure Java extensions. No one is the wiser. Clients love us for our blistering fast turnaround. We present ourselves as a larger company with fake LinkedIn employees. We actually only have four real employees, but with closure, we do the same work as if we had 20. Mm, Love it. (laughs) I love it. The fake LinkedIn. That's awesome. That's the nice touch is the fake LinkedIn employees to give them the heft for enterprises to say, oh, this is a responsible group of young lads. I'll go ahead and hire them. Whereas the four hippies could never get hired. Right. And yet they're the ones who can actually produce the code. And, and I really hope for, for the sake of, you know, just sort of symmetry and pleasing the universe that uh, they generated the fake LinkedIn profiles using the LinkedIn API in a program that wrote enclosure. That would <laughs> yeah. make me happy. I'm sure that would uh, that completes the circle. That is an amazing story, Neil. I love that. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> and uh, makes you wonder a little bit about, uh, you know, how many other places that's happening. Yeah, I think, it, you know, one of the, the strategies I talked about in that talk is to sneak it in and make it so useful that, you know, people start using it and not even realize that they're using it. And I think, you know, there's some interesting side projects that, you know, have a chance of sneaking things in the door, like, you know, Encanter and some of the core logic stuff. And, you know, there's some there's some some interesting hooks in that world that uh, will we'll get it in the door without people realizing it in some yeah. places. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's another thing I wanted to, uh, to talk to you about, um, which and I don't know how much you're involved in this. So maybe 
maybe the answer is not much, but you mentioned it earlier, the ThoughtWorks radar. Yes. Um, so we noticed at Relevance, we noticed um, that the most recent one uh, gives a big jump up to several of the technologies that we like. I mean, Clojure has moved into the Adopt quadrant. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Datomic moved into a higher quadrant, and I think Clojure Script did as well. Yes. So I'm, I'm a member of the Technology Advisory Board, so we're the ones who create the Technology Radar. Uh, this is done uh, twice a year in a face-to-face meeting. Last one was in Chicago. The next one will be in China in October, so you should see another Technology Radar coming out late October and early November of next year if everything goes to plan. Um, there are so the the the, member, the the people that are on the technology advisory board. Uh, Rebecca Parsons is the I'm sure you've met Rebecca at some point. Uh, she's a fascinating technologist. She's the CTO of uh, ThoughtWorks, and she formed this technology advisory board to kind of assist her and advise her around technological constraints or, or, or constraints and, and interests and other things that are happening within ThoughtWorks. Uh, And one of the things that we've gradually started doing is producing this technology radar, which are basically the members of the tab technologies that they think are cool and that they think uh, other companies should take a look at and maybe evaluate and start playing with. And not surprising, given that I'm on the tab and Sam Newman, one of my colleagues in the UK, who's also very passionately into uh, closure in the closure space, uh, we are the kind of the champions for a lot of the closure based technology on the tab. Um, although it's not to say others on the tab are not using it and have interest in it, but uh, for the little write-ups that you see as part of the white paper, uh, you have to have someone that uh, will pull their hand up and say, yes, I'm passionate enough about this to write about it. And Sam and I kind of trade off uh, between closure things. And, and the reflection of it getting higher and higher on our radar is a reflection of the amount that is being used more and more on ThoughtWorks projects because most of the things in the radar bubble up from ThoughtWorks projects toward the people that go onto the tab. So a lot of the tab members do sessions with projects or with offices leading up to the face-to-face meeting to see what people are using. So uh, to see it moving inward toward our adoptering is a reflection that we're using it more and more. And when we do, we're finding it that it's it's solving the problem the way we like it. Cool. Um, have you had a chance to work with Datomic much? That's kind of been my favorite thing I've done recently is to start to work with that a, a lot more over the last year. Have you have you had a chance to? I've been playing with it a lot, and I've been using it not on a client where I think we're about to convince a client to start doing some testing with Simulant, which uses Datomic mm-hmm. underneath, which yep. is pretty cool. Yep. Uh, so my level of interaction with it has been at that level. I haven't gotten to use it truly in anger yet, but uh, we're hoping to find a client where I can start doing that. Awesome. Yeah, it's I've, it's been really I, whatever i won't wax rhapsodic about it on yet another show but uh, <laughs> but you mentioned simulant actually which is another uh we need to do a show about that at some point but uh since i have you and then since you have had a chance to work with it a little bit i wonder if you could explain to people briefly what it is and 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 uh, what you like about it yeah it's it's a really fascinating kind of approach to testing uh, the first time i really had a deep dive at this approach and testing was actually a a, a chance i had uh, a, a large group was having a conversation with with uh, rich and he was talking about the kind of testing that he has done in the past for the election systems that he's worked on. And they have really interesting constraints in that timing is very, very important that some event that happens at uh, point X in time is, has less meaning if that same event happens at point Y in imagine, time. Imagine Rich building a system where time is important. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that. It's shocking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Um, 
But the idea of simulation-based testing is basically, if you think about the normal kind of, you know, uh, test, uh, expectation, you know, assert and, and expectations kind of uh, loop, it kind of pulls that apart. And the idea is, well, let's make time part of the idea of testing and let's run a whole bunch of tests, maybe with time speeded up or, you know, simulate a bunch of inputs and, uh, and you know, what happens. And then... Uh, once you've done that, go and actually do queries against, you know, did this work or not and find out the conditions in which it didn't work and, and you know, why, what caused it not to work. So it's much more of a kind of uh, ex uh, hypothesize, experiment, and then evaluate and analyze results rather than a more uh, um, uh, intimate kind of unit testing cycle of, you know, red-green refactor kind of testing. This is a kind of a step back as a way of seeing, you know, exactly what does my system look like under various kind of loads and stresses and combinations, and let me query and get statistical results to see, you know, what how my system works. So it's a very it's an interesting way to do testing, and and I found myself on a project that is doing very much that kind of uh, uh, testing in that kind of environment. So I think it'll work really nicely there. Yeah, I, I wonder if you have this because we've actually used I've used Simulant um, at Roomkey, uh, so one of our clients, and we've used it a couple other places. And and uh, the the thing I have found about simulation testing is that I kind of came into it going, oh, you know, unit testing that's pretty straightforward. You write a function, it calls a function, blah blah blah. Uh, simulation testing is is on such a different plane. Like the problem you're trying to solve is so much bigger than mm -hmm. the one you're trying to solve with unit testing that I was really taken aback by how much effort it was. That's not a comment on like simulant, but on really in retrospect, it's on, you know, it's really grown up. It's the difference between writing a function and writing a system, I think. Yeah, it's very much a, you know, system level, like a user. It's the same level of complexity as like user acceptance testing or even more, I think. Mm -hmm. But you get the same level of sophistication of the kind of things you're able to test now. So, you know, these, this is a much more sophisticated test than a unit test because it's pulling a lot more real world kind of considerations into it. So we would view this very much more, you know, sort of a, uh, an end of life cycle, more testing than, you know, very close to development kind of unit testing. Right. And I love the idea that, you know, testing is really, uh, you know, evaluating testing is really a question of looking at, you know, querying the results of, of the facts that you've got there in the, the database. Uh, one of the things that uh, when I was talking to Stuart about it, he said one of the things that he finds, and I can absolutely see this happening, is the fascination of starting doing anal analytics over all this data that you've gathered as you do these tests, because it's, you know, now your imagination is your only guide as to what sort of unusual queries you can pull out there to tell you all sorts of interesting stuff about your environment. Right. And because, because you've separated running the simulator, I and mean, there's actually multiple steps. There's a model at the very beginning, which describes the system in the abstract. Mm -hmm. Then there's an, uh, an activity stream that you generate and you store the model in the database, you store the activity stream in the database. Then you run the simulation using the activity stream, possibly multiple times. You store the results in the database, and then you can go back and do your analytics. And one of the really powerful things um, that you could do is to uh, go back to any previous run of the simulation and ask new questions about the results. So a customer mm -hmm. comes to you and says, oh, I've been observing this. And you're like, oh, that's weird. I wonder if we've had that bug since version you know, 0.5 and go back and look at your results for 0.5 and hey look, we didn't happen to write an analysis that 
pointed that bug out. But now that we know that the bug's there, we write an analysis and we can go back and say, yes, that's been there since since time, this point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that, that's a different kind of regression testing because mm. now you're regressioning over the data produced by former test runs. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a very cool uh, new way of testing some systems. I think it's gonna. Uh, I think you'll see more and more interest in that as time goes by. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, although it's not. It's definitely not a. Oh, I've got this little open source library, and I'm gonna. I'm just, let me just whip up a simulation test over the next three hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Cool stuff. It's a great example of some of the cool stuff that's coming out of the closure world today. Right. Right. And then that's actually an interesting point. Is um, you know. Like when I saw Core Async come out, I was like, one of the one of the comments I made in the conversation with Rich is, it's like it's really great when you have tools that you get that work with stuff you've already got in a kind of multiplicative way, right? Mm-hmm. So immutability enables async, san, sane use of Core Async. Yep. Right. Yeah. And, and even if you look at the, the kind of tool stack they're building with the ideas around pedestal and, you know, persistence being handled by Datomic, uh, and, and this is meant in, in every way to be a compliment, but they are kind of building uh, the simplified small talk environment where you can replace any of the pieces that you want, but that same feel of the, the full stack, everything is part of this environment that, you know, persistence is part of this world and so is the user interface and so is the code that you write. Uh, so, but small talk is, as to use Rich's word, com- highly complected, where all those things are extremely complected together. Whereas the version they're building in the closure space is a, a simplified version of that, where you can swap out some of the pieces. But if you use all the pieces together, there's a really strong synergy between them. Yeah, it's absolutely a value of, for example, the pedestal team that, you know, um, e- even where it does have some negative impact on, say, something like developer experience, right? So it may take you another five minutes to get set up. Mm-hmm. Um, that we, we really do value the ability to interchange things that that may need to be interchanged, yep. right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, that, that, that makes it so that, you know, at some point in the future when something anticip- unanticipated comes up, that that ability to be able to split that in a clean way makes all the difference. Right. You know, the you know, it was I never worked in the small talking world, but from people that I talked to said that it was an absolutely beautiful experience because once you got into that tool, you know, the entire universe was right there at your fingertips. You could touch anything. Mm. And there's huge value there, but then they learned the uh, the unvalue of that <laughs> very quickly in that, oh, well, I can't use any other kind of persistence mechanism or, you know, I can't produce any sort of output except a small talk image file. Or, you know, it's very hard to build kind of standard things. So uh, I think that this is a uh, and, and this is going to be a little bit of a reach, but it, in some ways it's the difference between fourth generation languages versus DSLs. Four GLs wrapped up all these abstractions in a really convenient way, but you could never get underneath those abstractions. Whereas DSLs like Rails, that's the 21st century equivalent of a fourth generation language. The difference being, though, you can drop right under that abstraction into the general purpose language if you need to. Mm-hmm. And so, in many ways, the kind of integrated stack that Closure's building is like that. <clears throat> the pieces all work together nicely, but if you need to, you can drop down an abstraction level and replace one of them with another piece if you need to. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. Hmm. Cool. Well, Neil, I've never had a conversation with you that was not interesting from beginning to end, and this is no exception. <laughs> um, 
I do want to start uh, wrapping up a little bit. I don't want to keep you too long, but before we uh, go on and ask you about the music on the way out, uh, is there anything else, or anything you're hacking on, or anything else we forgot to talk about, or things you want to mention? No, most of what I'm working on for, as part of my day job right now is uh, a lot of, there's a lot of interest right now on uh, evolutionary architecture, which is something I've done some writing and speaking about and plan to do a lot more in the future. I'm actually spending some time now kind of, uh, I, I realized that people on ThoughtWorks projects are doing this all the time, but we're not really talking about it much and nobody talks about it as a subject because it's this big sprawling amorphous subject. So I'm trying to sort of carve out some, you know, some places to hang some ideas in that space. So I'm spending a lot of time in that space. Um, and, uh, the, I'm interested in the intersection between that and things like functional programming languages. I think, uh, I think functional programming languages are actually going to make things like evolutionary architecture, some of those techniques a little bit easier. So that's where I'm really spending a lot of my kind of research and development time right now and hope to have some interesting outputs from that over the next couple of years, but it's a very much a, a slow learning process. Hmm. I wonder if you could give us the, uh, the pre-see, the, the, the short version of what evolutionary architecture is. I think we'll have to have you back on the show when you've, uh, you know, uh, what, what, this up. yeah, or whatever. I mean, we, we're happy to talk about it to you at any point, really, but just stuff you're thinking about, whatever, just, uh, maybe yeah. not make this into a two hour show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's just this idea that, uh, you know, I think the engineering side of agile is still is by far the most interesting part of that space. I think we've got the process stuff more or less nailed down, but there's all this room for innovation in the engineering space and particularly around things like architecture and design. And it's this kind of, realization that and, and and this is going to be i guarantee the only first and probably only time on this podcast that someone will quote the poetry of donald rumsfeld <laughs> who very famously said there are known unknowns and there are also unknown unknowns and it turns out those are the deadly things in software are the unknown unknowns the things that you don't even know that you need to make contingency plans for that always wreck your nice beautiful microsoft project resource balanced worksheets and all that stuff and so for a long time people in the software world have basically been trying to hone their techniques for telling the future to chase away these unknown unknowns and a lot of the work in the agile space has been you know what let's not spend all that time up front instead Let's spend our time trying to build techniques that allow us to build architectures that we can change as the world changes around us and incorporate those wild changes always come. Let's embrace that idea that things are always going to change versus trying to figure out ways to eliminate those changes. So that's the broad kind of sketch of the, the techniques around evolutionary architecture. And so what we're doing is building some techniques around metrics that you can use on code to understand code and relationships between code and thinking about, you know, what kind of systems systems allow you to evolve things over time to you know, start with a basic architecture and then evolve them without requiring major rework and refactoring efforts. And so there's a, I think a lot of interesting stuff around that. And I think a lot of the benefits of functional programming that we talked about earlier in this episode probably relate to the greater ease in which you can start isolating things from one another and moving them around. Hmm. Super cool. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm sure we could do like, you know, a whole series of Neil Ford shows. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty deep topic uh, in and of itself. So that's worthy of an entire podcast once cool. of, once we've uh, nailed down those ideas a little more firmly. Awesome. Will you, will you come back on sometime and talk to us about it? Be happy to. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, well, cool. So I think that's a, that's as good a place to stop as there ever will be. Um, so uh, I guess uh, really have to thank you for coming on the show. Like I said, I 
I'll always love talking to you. Super interesting topics. And, and of course, you're just a really nice guy as well. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. My pleasure. I love this podcast. So it's an, it's an honor to be included in the company that you've already had on this podcast. It's only a shame we haven't had you on sooner. So I'm glad to hear that you'll be coming back to talk to us as well. Yep. Um, but before we go, I have to ask you uh, for another song on the way out here. What, what would you like us to play as our exit music? So I was really torn as to what to, to put as my two musical statements in this podcast. And, and I finally... Uh, the, the, the playing out music is uh, one of the knee plays from uh, one of my favorite operas, which is uh, Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. And uh, it's the knee play that uh, if you listen to it long enough, it, they actually they're singing numbers, but they're singing the timing as well. And you can start telling exactly what's happening with the with the timing in the song by the numbers they sing. So basically the lyrics of the song are explaining the structure of the music underneath in a kind of a cool way. That is wonderfully meta. And also, I'm almost positive without even having to go back and review in my mind the first time we've had opera on the show. So that's, right, that's cool. great. A lot of first. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thanks again a ton, Neil Ford, for coming on the podcast. It has been great to have you. I'm looking forward to our next conversation, whether that's in real life or here on the show, and uh, certainly looking forward to the next time we have you on the show. Thanks Thanks a lot for coming on. You're welcome. My pleasure. All right, great. And we'll, so we'll thank our listeners. This has been Think Relevance, the podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you.